welcome to the first episode of the Cultural Capital Podcast. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. I'm Eloise Ross. And this will be a podcast investigating things that are happening on screens in Melbourne and the conversations that they start. Yeah, so just going to introduce the three of us so you get to know who we are and know who's speaking at any one time. Um, so Anders Furs is a freelance film writer and 2014 MIF Critics Campus alumnus. Anders joined the Melbourne scene direct from Albury in 2009. Thanks for that introduction, Eloise. Uh, Andy Hazel is editorial assistant at The Saturday Paper. He's an actor, musician, writer, all-around Renaissance gentleman, originally from Hobart. Thanks. Now, Eloise Ross is the president of the Melbourne Cinematheque and a scholar and writer. She is a lifelong Melbourneian. And so we'll be bringing our own um, individual flavours to these discussions. So you can uh, take sides and argue um, on Twitter, which you can find at the Cold Cap Pod is our handle. Or you can also find us on Facebook as well. Yeah, so check us out online. We'd love to chat. Please mm. chuck us a like and follow. First up, we're going to be discussing a film that's opening this week, or has opened already. Opened it opened last, last Thursday. Thursday, yeah, July, uh, June 2nd. Yeah, and this film mm. is Money Monster. We are live in five minutes. You have the revisions for the opening. We're still making some changes. Am I going to get the changes before the show or you after know the, the show? You just point the camera in my direction, we'll figure it out together. It always sounds so simple and yet so moronic. Here he is, the Wizard of Wall Street himself. The name is Lee Gates. The show is Money Monster. Without risk, there is no reward. Should I sell? Should I unload? Get some balls! Man up! Who's that guy on camera too? You want to complain about it? Go ahead. Who is it? Anybody know? Was it a union thing? Whoever's in there, turn the cameras on. Turn the cameras off, Patty. Turn them off, Patty. Turn them off. Put it up. Money Monster is Jodie Foster's fourth film as a director and her first with the producer, Daniel Dubecki, who produced Juno and Up in the Air. Um, This film tells a near real-time story of the cocksure financial TV celebrity Lee Gates, as played by George Clooney, who's taken hostage on his live TV show, Money Monster, by Jack O'Connell's Kyle Budwell. Budwell wants to answer, wants answers as to why a solid investment recommended by Gates turned out to cost him his entire life savings, which is a seemingly simple question whose answer proves to unravel some shady financial dealings. Julia Roberts plays Clooney's producer in a role that sees her most, spend most of the time speaking through a headset microphone. Eloise, what did you make of Money Monster? I quite enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed the experience of it, the you know, 90 minutes or whatever it was. I had a good time and I was really into the narrative. I really enjoyed that in the beginning, like it just kind of starts and hits the ground running straight away. Like in the first 10 minutes, you get this disruption where Kyle Budwell comes on set and um, takes Lee, um, what's his name? Lee Gates. Lee Gates, takes Lee Gates hostage. So in the first 10 minutes, you've really got the, you know, the kind of core of the narrative going on. So it was a really enjoyable experience um, right through to the end. But I'm kind of thinking about it and I feel like I've heard Jodie Foster say things like this is a commentary on the current state of capitalism, on the current state of um, politics and big banks Mm -hmm. um, and that people are really angry about how, you know, the everyday man is being treated um, by these, um, you know, big kind of big corporations. But I feel like the film didn't really deliver on that. Mm-hmm. It begins to suggest that places like the big banks are to blame and then it also says that things like media and journalists are 
also implicated in that um, by not, you know, not challenging them. And, and also because um, Lee Gates's character kind of espouses, you know, the involvement in, in mm. the, um, the Tao and whatever. Yeah. Um, but at the end, I don't know, I don't really know if it delivers on that. It sort of says that, you know, journalists and the media are, are a problem, but they get off scot-free. Mm-hmm. Do they, though? I mean, well, I, I think the film, the, I don't know, the film suggests that George Clooney and that, that money, well, the Money Monster program, uh, I, I suggest it's, I don't know, it's an indictment in the fact that the only way that they begin to do proper journalism is by being literally having this guy come up with a bomb and then they actually, you know, I think the film seems to suggest they've been inspired to become more interrogative, more, you know, more adversarial journalists through this whole ordeal, the ordeal of the film. So I think that in itself is a criticism of the current state of mainstream media mm. coverage in America. And also the all those audience shots I found particularly interesting. What did you think of the constant focus on the people who were watching the drama unfold? Do you have any thoughts on that? In the audience and then on the streets of yeah, New York. Yeah, on the streets, in bars, all that kind of stuff. I like that. At first I liked, in because in the first couple of minutes it shows um, people watching in Seoul, Korea. It shows people yeah. watching in Reykjavik, um, I think, and people watching in... Um, Johannesburg. Johannesburg. And I was like, okay, this is really cool. So this is a worldwide story. But then at the end, all three of those um, locations are actually implicated in the, the events unfolding exactly. in New York. So I kind of thought that was maybe a little bit cheesy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, it's very it's a very obvious kind of film. It's not a subtle film, mm. but I thought it was quite interesting. The way, particularly, there's that final a moment just towards the end where sort of the plot resolves itself in quite a dramatic fashion, mm. and then you cut to the audience in the bar just watching what happens, and then you see one of them go back to playing like table tennis or whatever football mm. football on the table, yeah. and I thought that was pretty that was pretty awesome to see that like moment like that was pretty yeah it was like, like we all really care about the world and we can get really impassioned about you know certain you know exciting kind of moments but then we just forget about them and move on yeah did it remind you of the end of the Truman Show where there's a scene where they what they just go where they finish watching the whole movie as it plays out on television yeah. and then one of them just the end the last line of the movie is so what else is on and then they just change the channel yeah I didn't think of that no, but it reminded me of that interesting kind of criticism yeah. of the state of things well I, I guess that's I mean and I think that moment too presents what I quite liked about this movie is that it's very sort of it's quite conventionally made but there are these little moments that I think I mean I mean I don't know if they're down to Jodie Foster or what that make it a bit more maybe subversive a bit more critical than I was otherwise expecting it to be. It's not just a straight Wall Street is bad kind of. Elise, movie. did you see any of Duncan Storer in Carl Bagwell? That's a really interesting um, question. I didn't think about him at all, but the the everyday man just kind of asking a question. Yeah, a simple question. That um, have big ramifications. Yeah. Look, he could be. He he's kind of just like the the stand-in, the person who's speaking for for all of us, isn't he? Um, I kind of, I don't know. <laughs> That's a tough one. Mm. Yeah, interesting question. He's well. I mean, the other interesting question is, I mean, well, Duncan's story wasn't uh, going into a uh, hostage situation. So, <laughs> that, which raises the interesting question: Is did you end up sympathising with this guy at the end? 
yes, I thought definitely that was what they were trying to get us to do, but I felt like the overall message, which was, you know, he's representing the 99% essentially, um, that I had no problems with, and I thought that played out quite in an interesting way, but the entire film was bookended by this kind of cutesy repartee between Roberts and Clooney, which seemed to be mm. totally from another film, where this, like, what are you having for dinner thing, which yeah. seemed to cheapen the entire thing. It was like, are you trying to make this slightly romantic comedy, or are you trying yeah. to soften it somehow? I really like kind of them together, but I think that, you know, they are excellent on screen together, they have this long history, they're really good friends, they're both, you know, like incredible performers on screen and they know how to hold your attention. So that was really interesting um, to use those two actors as the key roles in this film. Um, she's, she's definitely a lot better in this than in Mother's Day. I'll give her that. <laughs> she was quite good, actually. I, I like Julia I Roberts. like her a lot. Yeah. Um, George, I don't know, what did you think? He sort of played the sort of smug but also likeable George. I don't... He was a bit of a... Dick, a bit of a stand-in for media complicity in economic marginalisation, mm. but he was also, like, a likeable dude. He's very good because he's a great performer, so you really do yeah, believe... You do believe that he's this, like, shock jock kind of guy who doesn't really know anything about what he's talking about, but that he is always going to jump at the first chance to um, apologise or cover up for his actions, which is kind of what he does. Like, he just tries to get everyone on side by using every last trick in the book. So I think he does very well um, in that regard. I didn't like him in a sparkly vest, though, I have to say. Mm, right. Some of those scenes were a bit awkward. Like, I, I, I get they were trying to do, like, the what's his name, Jim Cramer, the American CNBC analyst who does all that crazy stuff, but... I don't know. I don't know mm. if I bought it when George was going full tilt, crazy, mm. yeah. uh, economic vaudeville. Right. Yeah, because I thought that Jack O'Connell really like. I, was, I don't know if you've seen Unbroken, but he was really great in that. It, and he seemed to rise above the material he was given. I thought in both this film and in Unbroken. Yeah, it's very good. But in, but I really felt that he was written in a very strange way by somebody who doesn't have much of an idea about working class people because his default thing was to say, "You hear me." At the end of every single sentence, which was just like what I imagine Jodie Foster thinks people from, you know, downtown. <laughs> but what about that weird Boston and New York? Scene? When his yeah. girlfriend goes in and she like goes to town on him. Yeah, that was nutty. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> it really tonally all over the place. This film. Yeah. Not necess- Not in a. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but, I mean, it was never not entertaining, and mm. the, the audience I saw it with, like, laughed at all the humor, and then also you know, gasped in all the places as well. So I guess that shows it managed to work in that respect. Two films that this reminded me of were um, Network, the Sydney Lumet film yes. from 1976, where Howard Beale... Says he's going to murder himself on television or commit suicide on television in a week just because he's bored and he's said enough. You know, he's this news reporter, but he's had enough. And so he's going to commit suicide on television and then they use it as this kind of thing to get great ratings and it backfires in the end. But it's a really sharp criticism. Um, But this whole idea of, you know, an action or a death happening on television, totally publicised in front of a whole bunch of people, to make a point maybe, I think in network there's he's not really making a point, which is kind of the the whole um, purpose of the film. But it also reminded me of um, Meet John Doe, the Frank Capra film from 1941, where um, in order to um, boost the ratings of her newspaper, Barbara Stanwyck makes up this character, John Doe, who apparently is really um, disgruntled with the state of things and the government not supporting the little man and says he's going to jump off the 
the roof of the town hall on New Year's Eve and commit suicide in front of a whole lot of people. Um, and they do that. They do that in kind of like, you know, the spectacle of the, the little man who, who's so unhappy with his life that he's going to sacrifice himself to make a point. Um, and then it kind of does. And it's, it's an interesting film, but I don't know if this, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to return to what I said before where I, I kind of think it maybe tries to take the easy, yeah. like, neat neat narrative way out um, anyway. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, particularly, I guess, with channeling all of this into the bad guy CEO character. So, I mean, it's a lot easier to resolve narrative when it's, like, one dude as opposed to a whole system. Mm. So it's a totally justifiable, I think... Mm. Uh, well, it, it, um, not justifiable, understandable uh, aspect of this film is the fact that, you know, really it's, uh, it seems to suggest that there's this structural problem, but at the end of the day, uh, really the main driving force of what the bad stuff that happened was this evil, you know, CEO kind of guy. Yeah, this one big bad, so... So, well, that raises the question, can Hollywood ever... Uh, tackle issues like this in a way that goes beyond just chat focalising them on one particular mm. person, on human-centred storytelling. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm reminded as well of Inside Man, the Spike Lee film, where in the, yeah. in the end the big bad is um, this banker who sympathised with the Nazis and that's, that's, he's, you know, the big bad in the film. It's no one else is to blame. The, the people who... Um, take hostages in the bank and threaten to rob the bank, don't even end up robbing the bank. It's just a revelation of, of kind of this exterior and foreign evil. Yeah, you could put print to the, the next question I was going to ask, which is where do you think this sits in with other films that have come out about the global financial crisis, like you mentioned Inside Man or The Big Short or Margin Call? I haven't seen either of those, so it's going to have to be you guys the, chatting. Well, the it's an interesting comparison point to The Big Short. I quite liked The Big Short, uh, it was almost like a weird essay film in a way. The way it was, it was much more interestingly made, just on a formal level. And I think uh, it. I mean, it focused on a bunch of people, but it's made. It was very much. It was much more of a comprehensive overview of events, I guess. And uh, but still in a very accessible, entertaining kind of way. Um, I think it. I don't know. I think it's uh, as populist American filmmaking goes. I think it's a superior film to this mm. one. Mm -hmm. What What do you think? I thought so as well. I thought yeah. they were actually were more interested in delving into um, the, the actual the deeper pressures that are forcing that force this situation. This ninety nine percent one percent thing, which they which I felt was tackled fairly superficially in this film. But I thought the Big Shot at least had a much more interesting approach. Particularly with its kind of insane editing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, mm. it's throwing everything at, at the wall. And, you know, direct-to-camera addresses and, you know, let's stop the movie for a second and explain what this term means. Like, they were very upfront about that. This was the other thing about um, uh, Money Monster, was the... It, it did feel at times quite didactic. Like, it opens with George Clooney sort of explaining, oh, this is why you've lost your money to the camera, but also to us to, under, to try and understand in a very awkward... Uh, unsubtle kind of way and it tries to dress that up in dialogue and I don't think it really succeeds whereas mm. the big shorts like well you know there's a very complicated issues let's just lay it out on the table and break through to the audience I guess yeah yeah, yeah. okay um, well it sounds like we've both got pretty mixed responses mm. to Money Monster maybe you're a little more positive Eloise I don't really think it succeeds in doing what 
um, intended to do just from thinking about the the conversations around it. But as a viewing experience, I did quite enjoy it. And I do think that it, like, because it is almost in real time, it does engage the viewer quite well. And I found the unravelling of the narrative to be quite enjoyable. I also was quite distracted by the score. Um, (laughs) I think it might be a good piece of music, but I thought it was just really... um, kind of intrusive at times but having like aside from that I think it was a quite enjoyable experience hmm. okay great um speaking of enjoyable experiences um people are getting quite excited about Scorsese the, the current exhibition on Acme at the moment and we're going to go further into this next edition of um cultural capital but is there anything else that's grabbing your attention at the moment and it's given that there's um the MIF First Glance has also been announced yes, this week yes MIF First Glance was announced this week um I think well, Eloise has the enviable position <laughs> of having been to Sundance this year and seen quite a few of these movies already. Eloise, I was wondering if you could talk us through some of your faves. Well, I did go to Sundance in January this year and I saw there's only a few Sundance films announced in the Myth First Glance um, selection. I do anticipate several more that should hopefully, or that I hope to see again, or that I missed at Sundance that I hope to see that will hopefully be announced in the full MIF program. Um, but the one that I am sort of most looking forward to seeing again, and I recommend, is uh, Kelly Reichardt's Certain Women. Right. Um, so this was a beautiful story, really engaging. It was um, adapted from three short stories written by um, Maylee Malloy, the American author Maylee Malloy. Um, and it was written by, written and directed by Kelly Reichardt. Um, her, I, it was a really great experience at Sundance actually because they screened the first film of hers that she, the first feature film that she screened at Sundance in 1994. Um, cool. which screened also uh, called River of Grass, which screened earlier in Melbourne, I think last week at the Essential Independence uh-huh. Film Festival. So um, Melbourne's had quite a lot of Kelly Reichardt to see this year. But Certain Women is a beautiful story. Three great performances by um, Michelle Williams, Laura Dern and uh, Kristen Stewart. What a combo. Um, yeah, so they're sort of interlinking but that's not really the point um and I really love the that the title of the film is certain women because it's just this incredible story about three women just sort of living their lives and 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 trying to get along so she's changed the name of the the stories from the Maylee Malloy original story so it's a really beautiful experience and I um am keen to see it again awesome um, I also saw, uh, lo and behold, Werner Herzog's d- new documentary about the internet. Oh, yes, I've seen that um, in Yeah, so that should be really good um, and get some good responses. I recently saw his latest um, <laughs> fiction film, Queen of the Desert, and um, I, I found it very disappointing. So this will be good to get, you know, to get his um, critical eye out there again. I've got, just on Queen of the Desert, I'll be curious, is it an entertaining movie I mean, I see, I love Nicole Kidman mm. and I kind of want to see it, but it does look incredibly uh, problematic. I, I actually found it kind of nice after about the first third. Okay. Um, once James Franco leaves the oh, scene, yeah, okay, right. it gets quite a lot better. But it is, it's, it's definitely dull. I mean, there are a few yeah, great okay. Herzogian moments in there, okay. but 
not nearly enough to sustain the film. It does sound like an interesting story. Gertrude Bell seems like a very interesting person. Well, that's the problem with it. I think she's much more interesting than the film gives her credit for. So I hope that maybe down the track someone else gives her gives her a bit of scope. Mm. Christos Kowskis mentioned in the Saturday paper that it was a, a really badly missed opportunity. Yeah. That the, the, yeah. They, like her son seems far more interested in her romantic life than the fact that she was interacting with all these cultures. And a, yeah, it's true. And a pioneer of, you know, of the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah, so hopefully, you know, she gets um, another go on the big screen in some other form. Um, just very quickly, I'm just going to mention two others that I didn't actually see at Sundance. I saw when I was in New York in December and January um, in Jackson Heights. The Frederick Wiseman documentary, it's a sort of three-hour study of the changes going on in Jackson Heights in New York at the moment. A really, really engaging um really interesting and sort of powerful film and if you're thinking about you know the the um, negatives of development and um, appropriation and um, displacement then it's a much more powerful sort of portrait of that than something like Money Monster. Yeah 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 right Um, he's god he's a good director I'm mm, dying to see that yeah I loved at Berkeley at Myth last year oh yeah year before before. that was amazing yeah Yeah. how long was that four hours four yeah Yeah, just over four hours um but yeah he's such a good chronicler of contemporary America. Mm. Um, cool. And yeah, the other film? Uh, finally, No Ho Movie, uh, Chantal mm. Ackerman's final film. Mm. Um, and she sadly committed suicide last September, I think. Um, and it, it was, it's obviously an incredible film. It's about her relationship with her mother, who, um, you know, sort of in the last couple of years of her mother's life, um, it's just this really minimal look at their communication and how they sort of how much they love each other and how much Chantelle Ackerman relied on and supported her mother and vice versa. And it's a beautiful portrait. Um, it had so much more sort of meaning and, and pain in it because of, of Ackerman's recent death. Um, but it's a really important film to see and I recommend everyone go to the cinema to see it because it is sort of it's filmed on a lot of computer screens you know there's a lot of Skype being filmed um it's there's a lot in it visually but it's not very cinematic but I still think that that can that can be um all the more reason to see it on a big screen because Mm. you don't kind of um underestimate what it's doing great Cool. And what are you interested in seeing, Anders? Uh, well, all of the above, to be honest, but I wanted to spotlight two things. The Centrepiece Gala this year is a film that's premiering up in Sydney in a couple of weeks, uh, Down Under, Abe Forsyth's comedy about the Cronulla riots. Um, I'm really sceptical about this. I'm very curious. <laughs> I, the, I was very... I was also similarly incredibly sceptical, but I saw... Have you seen the trailer? No. I watched the trailer last week and... I laughed a couple of times, mm-hmm. but, yeah, well, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, why the Cronulla riots need a comedy, I'm not... <laughs> uh, why this movie needs to exist, I'm not too sure. But um, curious. I'm, we should I'm, give I'm it very a go. curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's an interesting, intelligent guy. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Um, and then I wanted to spotlight a couple of documentaries. We've got Wiener, this amazing-looking documentary about the implosion of Anthony Wiener's... Uh, was it a... Was he running for governor? Mayor. Mayor of New York. Was yeah. He? Um, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, and then he got to uh, 16 and it all sort of fell apart. But, um, Twice. 
twice, yes. <laughs> but the amazing thing about this documentary is the access that's been given to the filmmakers. It's incredible. Um, from what I can tell, anyway, from the trailers and the short clips that have been posted online, like, you get the full... The full wiener, as it were. Um, yeah, no, it looks... And he, he looks like quite a character. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. And also, um, Huma, Huma Aberdeen, who is, like, Hillary Clinton's main advisor, she played, like, a starring role in uh, his campaign and it's featured heavily. So I think it'll be very okay. interesting in terms of, like, relevant Ameri- uh, contemporary American it's politics. Wife, is it? It is his wife, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who stands by him through the Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And now she's, yeah, and she's she's moved on to Hillary Clinton. So, yeah, I... <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out politically for her, this movie. Um, so there's that one. And then, Andy, thank you for putting me onto this, uh, Tickled. Yes. Now, this looks like <laughs> a trip and a half. Uh, so this is a documentary about... Uh, the world of comp- so-called competitive tickling. Um, and he's a young New Zealand journo who's made this kind of in the Louis Theroux mode, uh, or at least that's how they're trying to position him. David Farrier. David Farrier. Um, and he uh, he sort of invests, he discovers, he, well, he just sort of randomly discovers that this thing exists. Uh, he fires off an email to the company that sort of produces these films and uh, he gets this really sternly worded homophobic reply. And so, you know, him being an investigative journal, he goes over to America and events ensue. I'm not quite sure what, but the trailer is incredible. Yeah, so I highly recommend anybody listening to this go out and watch that because it's not like any other film. Yeah, I'm very, very curious to see this as well. Um, yeah, at one point he's literally, what's it, he's like the, the web of competitive tickling was getting too, too big. I was in too deep. Like, it's full, that's crazy. Yeah, it's not turning into a thriller part way through and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's my trailer of the year, actually, I'd have to say. Yeah, same. Yeah. Yeah, um, chilling. Yeah, and then finally I just want to mention the virtual reality showcase that they've announced. So the Sydney Film Festival is getting on virtual reality as well this year. So it's very interesting to see this as a new trends um and i'm just i'm hoping for works that are beyond just sort of like techie showcases the the there was a big virtual reality showcase at sundance film festival so obviously it's a a new thing that's that's touring the world that's going to become part of our festival going experience now um, I only, I kind of walked through the, the gallery when I was there and saw a few things that looked like some really interesting stuff going on, a lot of people engaging with it. I did, the only um, sort of activity that I, I took was um, the, there's a documentary that I believe is screening at Sydney called Notes on Blindness about John M. Hull, who was a writer and a theologian who um, went blind at like the age of 35 or something. And so there's a documentary about him and then there was also this virtual reality experience of it um I found it a bit I didn't really love the experience to be honest I found it a bit disorienting perhaps that's the point but um be interesting to see how it's received here yeah definitely I mean I've I've only played around with sort of uh brief um you know like the Samsung stuff when you go to the Samsung store Mm. and what I've found from my very limited experience is when there's uh, human figures around you in the virtual reality experience is quite it's quite an amazing immersive jarring experience but when it's sort of more abstract it yeah. really it disorients me completely so yeah it'll be interesting it'll be interesting to see but it's interesting to see that this is being pushed so heavily this year at various mm. festivals mm. Um, yeah. I feel like every year there's something that's not filmed that's being pushed you know whether it's the planetarium or 
the vertical cinema. The vertical cinema last year was amazing. Or that chair, the emotion oh, chair. Yeah, or that's right, the emotion <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But there's always something. Whether it's a gimmick or a trend, I don't know. We'll yeah. see. We'll see. <laughs> what are you looking forward to? Well, well, Wiener and Tickled really stood out to me, but also there's a film called Life Animated, which is directed by um, Roger Ross Williams, which is about a life of a, a man called Owen Suskind. And the film is actually filmed from the from when this guy was three, and he had quite severe autism and was mute. Mm-hmm. But then he started watching and became obsessed with Disney movies and would only speak using lines from Disney films. And so wow. this film is an animated story that takes place over about 20 years. Cool. And it basically entwines Disney movies... And his life, you know, as this animated mm-hmm. guy. And so it becomes this sort of tribute to cinema. And also it gives you this amazing insight into communication and, and autism and the, and the importance of art, I suppose. In, in Sounds fascinating. Yeah, so I think at the moment that, that along with uh, Finding Dory are the front runners for the Oscars <laughs> animated, Best Animated Film. Right, yeah. And, so, and this was apparently a big hit at Sundance. So I'm very keen to see if this has a similar response in Melbourne. Great. Cool. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> really the ones that's standing yeah. out for me at the moment. Um, but I think uh, that's pretty much everything that we're going to be covering at, um, that's on at the moment. But also yeah. in the next episode, apart from Scorsese, as we mentioned, we'll also begin our and look a regular look at a film shot in Melbourne. And this is going to start with a look at Monkey Grip. Yeah. And then we'll make it a sort of a semi-regular segment, looking at um, films filmed in or made about Melbourne, just to, you know, shine the spotlight on... On this city, mm. yes, I think it'll be, that will be um, very illuminating, particularly for people who live here and may not understand its role in other films besides mm. such classics as The Castle and Rumpus Stomper. Oh yeah, we can go a lot deeper. <laughs> um, so thank you very much for listening, and do remember to follow us on Twitter and let us know that you've listened to this on Facebook. And we'll be back to you in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.